Hello and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast and this is the 126th. And it's still not the last one in March because it's a five Wednesday month this month. And while North America beat us to it by springing forward already, we're doing that this weekend and losing an hour's sleep in the process. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and I finally got my vaccination appointment. And hopefully it's the first of two. It's actually on a Saturday, so no time off for it. Of course, it doesn't mean instant immunity, and it also doesn't mean as soon as I've had it that I can run mask-free through the Scottish countryside to the airport to take a holiday. That road ahead is still a little bit fragile, but definitely one worth taking, and hopefully there is light at the end of the tunnel. Now that school's back in again here, I've finished all the hiking DVDs and I'm now tearing through the backlog of music to listen to, although it will soon be the Easter break, which means enduring poorly produced YouTube videos, although for a change the weather forecast is good. After all, it is spring in the Northern Hemisphere finally. Here, that usually means it's just slightly warmer rain. Before we get to this week's news, I will tell you who our guests are this week. We have one interview with two people, and that is with Korshat Uisal, Gemak UK, and Kieran Adam, Product Manager at The Collective. We also talk to Richard Hampton, Managing Director of UK Dairy Cooperative Omsco, and Shane Giuliano, Co-Founder and CEO of 108 Labs. We also have a weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. As it's a lengthier podcast this week, let's get straight to the news. And it's been a bit sporadic this week. Lots of news, then not so much, and then a lot more. I generally run between five and nine articles every day, but for tomorrow, I've already got 14 decisions to make. So here we go. Lexali is set to buy Leerdammer cheese from Group Bell. Friesland Campina and Domti are setting up a cheese export joint venture in Egypt, And a study on cows says that just like humans in lockdown, cows aren't happy when they're kept inside either. Donaldson has introduced the UltraPak Smart Dryer for compressed air process filtration applications, which includes dairy, or I wouldn't be mentioning it. Arla is tying climate to financial performance, and Danone has launched an interesting product, and that is formula milk in pre-measured tab format. We will have an interview on that on the podcast in the coming weeks. In the UK, First Milk introduced a new project to protect local watercourses and continuing with the theme of sustainability. Bell Brands USA and Land O'Lakes have partnered on a pilot sustainable agriculture program. Fonterra published its latest financials, as did Italy's Granarolo. And in the UK, EcoVeritas has come up with an online plastic packaging tax calculator to help the packaging industry. Griner Packaging has completed its Project Snap for yogurt multipacks, which is interesting. They introduced more sustainable four-packs of yogurt cartons, but consumers apparently weren't happy because when you break them away to eat one, it wasn't making a snap, so they made one. In the Philippines, SMC created packaging to extend Carabao Milk's shelf life by six months. And before you head off to Google, a Carabao is a water buffalo, so when that comes up on Jeopardy, you'll know the answer. You can read all of these and more potential game show answers at DairyReporter.com. Alright, let's get to this week's first subject. 
Processing equipment company GEMAC has designed, manufactured, installed, and commissioned a process and packing plant built specifically for the manufacture of plant-based yogurts and other dairy alternatives made by the collective. To tell us all about it are Kurshat Uysal from GEMAC UK and Kieran Adam, product manager at the collective. I guess if we could start, Kurshat, with um, a bit of information on GEMAC. GEMAC. It was officially established in 1986. It dates back to uh, late 60s by two guys who used to be engineers for the uh, Turkish Dairy Board installing plants for the government. And they've decided to set up on their own and started manufacturing heat exchangers. Um, so over the over the years, uh, they've partnered um, uh, processing with a company called Alpha Laval and become an integrator for them. So since sort of late 80s, we, we work with them. There's seven different business units. Uh, we operate from a um, 200,000 square foot manufacturing plant and the business units are process design, uh, manufacturing, assembly installation, software automation, sales and service. Uh, we also uh, have started an R&D center, which we have over 20 employees in, uh, dedicated uh, working on R&D for various new projects, plant-based being one of them, which started uh, last week. <laughs> yeah, so that's sort of uh, a small information about GEMAC. We also, in late 2019, have uh, acquired an assembly plant. Uh, this was a 20-year dream of the CEO, building plants within our factory and not having to do any welding or installation on, on site, which is not easy. Everybody has to do it. So it's been a long-term plan, but it, it sort of came in in end of 2019 and it sort of fitted really well with the issues we had with uh, COVID. So that's a small information. And then Filtech uh, manufacture uh, filling lines for pots, buckets, and uh, bottles, basically rotary and linear fillers with end-of-line uh, packaging, case packers, palletizers, robotic palletizers, uh, and so on, mainly, again, serving the uh, food industry. Is Filtech a part of the company? or how is No, it? Filtech is a separate company. Okay. When GEMAC does uh, turnkey installations, it sort of these things marry up. Um, it's, it's sort of all about full accountability. When we do a plant, we like to keep it under one roof, so we have full control and full accountability to the customer. So there's one point of contact. No blame culture. If it goes wrong, it's all our fault. All right. So I guess it's over to Kieran to talk about the collective. Yeah, sure. So um, yes, yeah, so the collective is a gourmet yogurt brand um, in the UK and in New Zealand. So you can find us in the, the supermarkets, all your supermarkets were there. And yeah, similar to, to Kurshat's story, really, the brand was started by two guys uh, called Angus and Offer. They, they weren't engineers, they were chefs, and they had rival businesses. They had sort of rival soup and dip businesses. And they both saw this opportunity in yogurts at the time in New Zealand. The things on the shelves were generally mass-produced, and they saw an opportunity for this really interesting, luxurious yogurt. They learned how to make yogurt. They built a factory in New Zealand and started selling it. And it sort of blew up over there. And it's still one of the main brands over in New Zealand. 
that was about 12 years ago. And within a couple of years, they were looking to expand into other markets. And they met with Mike and Amelia, who are our founders. They had just been work- they'd been working at Goo, Goo Puddings, which had just been bought out uh, and they wanted to start something in the UK. So they came together and really quickly started making these yogurts at Yo Valley. At the time, there wasn't anything like it. Um, since there's there's a few sort of copycats that have come onto the market, but yeah, we started with the with the gourmet range, which is you might see it in the supermarkets. It's got a like a black lid, a layer of fruit at the bottom, like fruit compote, and a layer of fruit compote at the top. That's the, you know the core of our business, um, and we've got a, a plain sort of natural yogurt called Straight Up. But since then, we've we've really grown from strength to strength. So we launched a kids range called Suckies which is a really strong part of our business. Uh, and we've launched kefir drinks and also kefir yogurt this year, really, that we've launched into plant-based, which has been a really big strategic move for us. It's something that we've had in the pipeline for a few years now. I was sort of working on this project for the last two years, really, right from the concept. And it, it sort of started with, we knew that the plant-based movement was was growing and we saw that not really stopping. And a third of the population in the UK are flexitarians. So we knew that there was a really big market for people that are dipping in and out of dairy or dairy alternatives or producing their meat. It was a sort of no brainer to decide to do it. Obviously, making it happen wasn't wasn't so easy, but um, Kushat made it a little bit easier for us. But yeah, our roots will always be in making ridiculously tasty yogurts. Um, and this launch is all about giving choice to consumers, really, whether it's dairy or plant-based. So in terms of um, processing, could you tell me what you have in your portfolio that works for the dairy and the dairy alternative mm. industry? Yes, sure. The roots of the business, like I said, is is from the dairy processing. And even now at the moment, 70% of our sales are in the dairy processing sector. Uh, that's how the business grew. And also, as the business owners were engineers, uh, not so much sort of food engineers, they were mechanical, electrical engineers, new innovative stuff, new project, new process is, is sort of a, has been a hobby for them. So they, we've always, as a business, always looked at different solutions, different process solutions, and we've partnered with industry leaders on those as well. So it was a natural progression, which gives us a, a benefit because we became a manufacturing business. Firstly, we're, we were an engineering company. So that's still that culture is still in the business. So obviously manufacturing efficiencies and costs and so on are important, but we always like a challenge on a new process. So we're, our doors are always open for that. For that reason, we have a, quite a big R&D department. So for the dairy industry, our unique selling point is really turnkey plants. Although we do individual equipment like tanks, vessels, processing vessels, plated tubulars, scrape surface heat exchangers, uh, pressurized tanks, powder mixers, everything. When we talk about dairy industry, it is easier for me to say what we don't manufacture. And those are separators and homogenizers. We manufacture everything else for fresh and uh, long life dairy products but our main unique selling point is turnkey plants because we took the decision uh, as it is a fast moving consumer goods our, our reaction is exactly the same so we were, we've been looking 
the part of the world we're in where there is a lot of investments. Uh, this probably wouldn't happen if, if we were manufacturing in, uh, elsewhere, that we have enough new projects to be able to employ over 200 people. Uh, that then gave us the possibility of having our own. We've got seven software engineers. Uh, we've got three food engineers. We've got chemical engineers. We've got our team is really strong. So we don't outsource anything. So it's all made in in-house. Uh, that is the most important thing for us. There's no blame culture. The software didn't work or the automation wasn't right or the kit wasn't right. We, we have full accountability. What also that means is we can arrange our manufacturing shift patterns and, and team to do things faster than other people can do. Also, the other uh, unique point is we have our we have got 50 people working on site works all over the world. So we also install our own team installs our plants as well. Sometimes we work with contractors if it's a customer's choice, but we we have it, uh, if you like, in-house. With the equipment we manufacture, so all kinds of dairy products from uh, pasteurized milk, yogurts, uh, cream cheeses. We, we're not that strong in sort of hard cheese products. Our majority of the, we do offer it, but if I, if I have to say where we're most strong is sort of liquid, viscous, semi-viscous, pumpable dairy products where we excel and have the most know-how. And how did the relationship with Meadow Foods come about and how does that connect with the collective? Basically, we when we came up with this idea that we wanted to plant-based yogurts, we looked at the dairy or dairy alternatives category and kind of looked across at milks and yogurts and cheese and ice cream and stuff and saw that there was a bit of a um, sliding scale in terms of consumer acceptance of different types of dairy alternative with milks generally they're very widely accepted lots of people drink them or are happy to either completely replace dairy or to swap but then at the other end of the spectrum you've got dairy alternative cheeses which you know there are good brands out there but really it's more of a far cry from real dairy cheese so our kind of insight was that we wanted to create something in yogurt that was you know, the compromise was as small as possible from actual dairy yogurt. Uh, we wanted to kind of mimic the attributes of normal yogurt as much as possible in terms of having something that's thick and creamy and tangy, quite neutral as well, because especially at the time, things have, have improved since then. But there's quite a lot of polarizing flavors um, like coconut. Some people love it. Some people don't. Soy can have tastes that some people don't like. Uh, also, there's the allergies or allergens in terms of soy and and some of the nut-based products. So we approached it as rather than being stuck to one type of plant, uh, like soy, for instance, we decided to try and make a blend. And we knew that to make the finest yogurt, you need to make the finest milk, being sort of, you know, yogurt experts. We started by trying to make a milk blend out of different plants. So we were we were literally making milk out of, you know, oats and different nuts and hemp and all sorts of things. And we ended up with this blend of oats, coconut and rice um, that all have sort of different attributes. When, and when, when we blended them together, they it tasted really good, like, you know, very similar to normal dairy milk. So we then fermented it and turned it into yogurt. And that's how that was our kind of kitchen based process. The challenge then came to upscale that into a factory setting. And as a business in the UK, we don't have our own factory. We outsource to other manufacturers. So it's a case of trying to find a manufacturer that could do all of the things we needed. So make plant-based milk, make yogurt 
And ideally, we wanted it in an environment that didn't have any dairy. So we didn't want any dairy contamination. We wanted to be able to claim the product as dairy free. And it took a long time to find the right partner. It took 18 months and many, many meetings with different co-packers. A lot of them were really good, but just didn't quite fit the bill. And eventually we met with Meadow Foods, who are a really strong company. They, they stood out as just being a, a very strong business and they wanted to get into the plant-based area as well for their own business of sort of ing- selling ingredients and uh, selling things to food service. So it was quite a, a good collaboration that we had and we were able to co-invest in this completely brand new facility. But we knew the facility needed to be kitted out and quickly because uh, we wanted to get the products on the market as quickly as possible. And in one of the factory visits of a, you know another co-packer, I met uh, Kershap and um He impressed me with his processing knowledge and I impressed him with some Turkish. My girlfriend's Turkish. So once we got things going with Meadow Foods, I kind of made that link with Gemak. I think, you know, we were competitive and also our lead times. And we have a lot of knowledge in yogurt. Uh, It's a very strong product in our market. And we've installed probably over 130 turnkey yogurt plants around the world so we know yogurt so we were open to new technologies and it was very exciting for us and we're very happy that we were chosen for the project and were there any challenges involved with doing something that was dairy free as opposed to dairy i think maybe the if the question is were there any non-challenges that'd be easier to answer <laughs> <laughs> it is completely new although the process lends itself to dairy processing. The material is completely uh, different, how you handle it and what is expected and so on. So I suppose, you know, the, the food science behind it is completely different. What makes the yogurt in dairy? There's some similarities, but it doesn't behave, I suppose, anywhere near like dairy. But our customer, the, the collective and meadow was very open-minded. So we knew there was unknowns. So we built the plant taking the unknowns into account. And I suppose we could say we've sort of overspec the plant to allow for future products and future growth and, and so on. And that was the right decision to go with because there, there was a unknowns with it because it is a unique product. And, and no matter with any new product, kitchen scale samples and information is so valuable. But when it is upscaled, there is always, no matter how much we simulate how well it's going to mix in the tank and we we have all sorts of software and programs but we've made the plant really really flexible as far as we know other than the plant that we've built in new zealand to make this product there's not any other plant in europe at least that has this kind of process that literally you're making you're making milk out of oats and rice from scratch then immediately you know adding some of the other ingredients and fermenting it and packing it all in a couple of days. What's really great is that we've got the flexibility to, in the future, we can move into different formats, different kind of types of dairy alternative. Uh, the site is completely segregated, so it's completely, there's no dairy, even though it's you know part of a dairy business, and we obviously have dairy products. Doing it all in lockdown as well <laughs> was quite astonishing, both from Gemak and from Meadow. A lot of it was done in offsite in Turkey and then brought over. And we managed to hit our range reviews in for January this year. So it was all, it was all delivered on time, despite 
you know all of the restrictions and things so it was quite quite amazing really we delivered it on time and as well on budget i suppose we were lucky as well that we had this assembly plant that we acquired within i mean probably a month before we signed contracts and we just immediately made the decision right we're not installing this on site we're installing it in our factory that must be really useful to have that capacity the assembly plant is unique because for example for this project once we did all the project designs we did we produced a 3d design which included meadows building which was not finished so within our assembly plant we made walls built walls where the gutters are going to go in and installed the whole plant keeping the distances we haven't even done it in sort of skid units and put them next to each other we've installed it as it would fit from outside to the cold store in inside our plant we wired it up we've put air cables in we've connected valves we've done the pipe work cip services everything and uh, where we had to put things on the walls, pipe supports, we've made temporary brackets to hold it from the floor. So we installed the uh, full plant in our plant, which took out eight weeks. If you think about it, any sort of a medium-sized dairy plant could be eight to ten people working on a site with our standards, eight to 15 weeks, let's say, yeah, a medium-sized dairy. This is with, with our standards, so our guys working issues. That's a fast time. Taking eight weeks out of a, let's say, a 10-week installation, and not only is the speed or being able to do it, but then you have having uh, contractors on site for health and safety, the CDM regulations. It's a huge benefit to customer not having to manage, having people on a food site, welding, cutting, chopping, going in from one area to the others and or finding space for services even. We think this is the way forward. Obviously, we can't predict exactly what's going to happen, and especially with the pandemic. But for for both of you, what are you seeing as 2021 opportunities, challenges? For us as a as a brand, we definitely see plant based alternatives continuing to grow throughout this year and you know the years to come. And for us, it's just about being able to offer that choice of be it dairy or or non dairy, and that's really our big kind of opportunity and objective for this year and a big part of our strategy in the future you know it's still a relatively immature category in terms of the products a lot of them maybe don't deliver on taste or there is that quite a compromise compared to how the dairy products deliver for us we do have a lot of customers in sort of food service supplying food service catering and hotels and so on so it's been a difficult year for them the European market has been quieter, almost stationary for investments, really. Other markets, I don't know why, have not been like that for our general business. However, I do see the UK market, I mean, we already seen it in the last couple of months. There is a lot of movement in non-dairy, but also on other things, big opportunities for startups. I think that's going to be what we expect from this year. And also the uh, the non-dairy, we think, you know, over the next 10 years, maybe longer, is, is going to uh, keep growing. We're staying in the UK for the next interview, which is with Richard Hampton, Managing Director of the dairy company Omsco. And it covers a few topics, from Brexit to the pandemic to tariffs. 
So I wonder if we could start just with a bit of background on the company itself before we get into tariffs and trade and all that good stuff. Sure. Well, OMSCO is the rather unimaginatively titled uh, Organic Milk Suppliers Cooperative. Uh, we started back in uh, uh, November 1994 on vesting day, on the first day that farmers in the UK could freely sell their milk to whoever they wanted. And uh, we began with three farms and uh, we now number around uh, 250, producing 200 million litres of organic milk a year. And we uh, and that accounts for the majority uh, of UK organic milk production. We're a national organisation, so we have farms that stretch from uh, uh, right down at the bottom of Cornwall all the way to uh, Inverness. We farm from very large to very small producers within the organisation. We're now uh, 28 members of staff operating out of a small office in, in a village, uh, northwest Somerset. Uh, so that's the operation as it is today. And we now specialise in supplying raw milk to the UK marketplace. We also have a very substantial cheese business in the UK. So we supply about 70% of UK cheese, own label organic cheese is, uh, is supplied via our partnership with White Farms. And we have a very large export business on cheese, which is about the same size as our domestic business. And the markets for that principally are the US, but increasingly the rest of the world. And then we also produce a range of uh, specialised ingredients and bulk milk powders and butter fats and the latter in particular being sold to the US. So we have a we have a very large export business totaling around 30 million US dollars in the US market and, and other amounts around the world. So it's a very diverse operation that we now run uh, and you need to because in order to provide pricing stability in quite a niche market you have to have access to not only to different geographies but we also have a need to access different products and product types as well so uh, it's been a very interesting journey of expansion over the last 25 years and as far as exporting how much of the business and how important is exporting to what you do Exporting is massive, massively important, not only in terms of the returns and the premiums that it provides, but it does two very, very critical things. Number one, it helps us to balance. So, uh, you know, when we have imbalances between fats and proteins, we need to have access to those markets to be able to balance that up. And they, uh, we get the value added out of those markets uh, for those particular products. And the other thing is, uh, it's where a lot of the growth is. There's been very little growth in recent years, say for the last year during COVID um, in the UK marketplace. But where we have found growth is, has always, uh, for the last 10 years, has been abroad. Uh, and that's allowed us to continue to offer expansion opportunities to existing members. Uh, and it's allowed the UK market to expand accordingly. And in terms of export, maybe it's a little early to say with Brexit, but how have Brexit and the pandemic affected things? Well, if we take the pandemic first, in the UK, we are relatively retail led as an organisation. And so our net sales position in the UK marketplace have increased during that time. And we can see very obvious evidence of the trends are, uh, I'll give you a good example, our business with retailer based customers, so customers who, who bottle milk and who manufacture products for, that are sold in supermarkets up, you know, around 10% year on year. Our business with customers who produce milk and dairy products for doorstep delivery and for internet up around 500% a year, which reflects the trends that we've all seen with a big move into much more online shopping during this period, 
but also crucially uh, box deliveries, home deliveries, etc. Food service business clearly has been a disaster for all involved. Um, in our case, it is a relatively small part of what we do. So uh, we have not been quite so uh, so touched by that particular issue. When turning to Brexit, Brexit has been highly disruptive for planning. We have lost quite a bit of business from customers where we were just simply unable to provide the assurance that we could continue to ship into Europe year on year. Remember, in the, in the world of organic, there was an additional problem. It wasn't just a case of tariffs. We had a fundamental non-tariff barrier, and that was that organic rules, UK organic regulations were not approved by Europe. And so therefore, up until the 24th of December, we faced a situation where there was an outright ban coming on exports of organic food from the UK. It didn't just affect dairy, it affected all organic food. So we really couldn't plan anything and our customers have had to look for ways to to source some alternative suppliers, given that contracts tend to start on the 1st of January for the calendar year. So the deal came too late for much of what we did, but we're, we're building that back. And where we do have business, we face substantial on costs of customs charges and, and other fees, which is very unwelcome. But that is the new world. And that's that's where we're going to be from now on. There are some longer term implications that we're not quite clear on yet. One of them, a big one, of course, being rules of origin, where we're sending goods to the to what is uh, to the EU from a third country, as we now are a third country. We can get caught up in issues of rules of origin where uh, those customers of ours are using our products as an ingredient in something that they manufacture. But that's an incredibly complex area, and we don't know the full implications of that in the long term. But um, it's not been a positive experience, let me put it like that. As far as the tariffs that were put in place by the previous Trump administration, how, how did they affect business? Well, obviously, the tariffs are paid by the importer. The reality is that you either choose to support that to help things through or you end up with a prohibitive pricing on the shelf. And, you know, you pay for it one way or the other, either through margin or through volume. Now, in reality, for us, it was a bit of both. What's fantastic is obviously last week those tariffs were removed for a period of four months pending a solution pending what we hope to be a longer term agreement. So, uh, in fact, actually, this it's very topical that this week, because we're having uh, conversations with our customers about exactly what that then means for shelf pricing, because we can, in the case of our cheese, for example, we can see the tariffs were worth at least a dollar a pound on the shelf. And that's significant for the US consumer. And it's had an impact, a negative impact on sales. Not initially. It was interesting. The first year of these tariffs came in in October 2019. And for the first year, nine months or so, uh, things were pretty stable, actually. Uh, although shelf prices went up, demand stayed relatively stable. But the winter trading period in the US has been tough for COVID for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, and we certainly started to see some challenges on the volumes then and some performance declines. So, you know, a reduction in a dollar a pound, which we expect can, you know, we can roll through onto the shelf fairly soon as a result of this change to tariffs is very welcome and it puts us back into a much more competitive position. And how quickly will that be reflected? Uh, how quickly can you turn that price around? There are always going to be lead times that are different depending on you know the retailers and the, the ability to get in front of those retailers and, and the speed of their internal administration, but it should be a relatively quick exercise. The tariffs have been withdrawn with immediate effect. Where we've got Pricemark products, that obviously takes a little bit longer. But next production runs of Pricemark packs from the UK will go out there with uh, with the lower prices on. 
Are you getting any sense of whether this is just going to be temporary relief or how how that's going to, as you said, four months time, it'll be revisited? What's going to happen in those four months? That's the $64,000 question is what will happen beyond July. And I think it's not dissimilar to Brexit. Uh, You have to hope for the best and plan for the worst. (laughs) Yeah, because the last thing that you want is to have your prices go back down and then all of a sudden they're back to where they were before. Yeah, but you see, I would hope that there is now enough goodwill in the process. I mean, if there has been sufficient goodwill to do a deal to remove these tariffs for four months, remember that the UK removed the tariffs on inbound goods from the US on the 1st of January, the day we left the EU. So we were then able to act independently and we chose to do that. So we de-escalated on the 1st of January. And I think that will count for a great deal when it comes to ultimately finding a longer term solution. So I'm very hopeful that we've seen the last of tariffs, uh, those super tariffs, let's say. You can never guarantee it. And and as you said, the goodwill is one thing, but I think it's probably something that has been negative for both countries. It's not really helped anybody. Well, I think that's true of tariffs throughout the world. I mean, no one wins. It's disappointing. I, I was reading some statistics the other day that there's more, you know, after many, many years of tariffs, generally tariff burdens of overall trade being reduced around the world. It's now starting to go up for the first time in a long time and one hopes that we can reverse that trend and get back to a more free trade global position as quickly as possible. Does the potential permanent hopefully easing of tariffs affect your business strategy in terms of what you will export to the US? I mean, do you plan on introducing more products at some point? Oh yeah, what what it's certainly done is it will allow us to get back the momentum into our new product development and our brand rollouts it's a tailwind you know it's a tailwind to our operations it accelerates the growth it encourages people to invest and to focus more on the products throughout the supply chain so it's great all round in that respect and i mean your original question has it changed our strategy well it didn't really change our strategy when we went into that scenario it was just a question of our products were a lot more expensive on the shelf that either meant that businesses that were due to take the product chose not to for a period of time and sell them. And uh, customers, when they were faced with them, were faced with the choice of paying more or not buying at all. So it acted to stunt the growth, both of our plans and also of our volume sales in the marketplace. It didn't change the strategy as such, and the reversal of that won't change the strategy either. It's an enormous market, and we're only really scratching the surface. And in terms of the timing of this, is this a good time for sales in the spring moving into the summer? Is it optimal time for this to be easing the restrictions? Well, the the U.S. as a market is sort of biased towards the end of the year because you've got the key trading periods. For for premium cheeses such as ourselves, it will be Thanksgiving and Christmas will be the big driving period. So it's a Q3, Q4 marketplace. But, you know, this gives us time now to get aligned for a new world in the U.S. in terms of our trading from then. And I guess it's not just uh, we're talking about the U.S. here, but that's not your only market, is it? Correct. And so we've uh, started to export cheese progressively around the world. We supply the Middle East. We supply Australia. uh, We're moving into other markets in the Far East. And uh, now that we have the freedom to do so, we can uh, look at uh, European destinations as well. And we have a new uh, distribution agreement in place with partners to do exactly that uh, now that we know that uh, UK organic food is accepted in Europe. Positive times all around, I guess. 
I'm very positive about the future. I think if you look at uh, for a number of reasons, and uh, probably the single the single biggest reason for me is that there is no doubt that COVID has created a behaviour change amongst consumers. And that is generally towards attributes in food products which tend to suit organic very well. So it's environmental aspects, it's health, it's provenance, it's traceability. And all of those factors, organic can really wave a flag and say that we are right up there in terms of the gold standard in all of these kind of areas. So I am absolutely convinced that when we see the demise of COVID-19 as a pandemic, and we certainly will, over the course of the next few months, I think we will see food service picking up and uh, retail sales, I have no doubt, will start to temper just a little bit as people get back to a more normal way of working. But there's no doubt that food purchasing trends have changed, and I think that will be to the advantage of organic. So I think the domestic market is likely to see some positive long-term benefits of that. I think there's so much more. I think we're now looking at an environment where we will see an acceleration in the change towards thinking about where food comes from globally. I think there is more focus on big issues such as antimicrobial resistance. Uh, And it's only going to accelerate both government focus and legislation and also policy towards some of these areas. So I think those are all the sort of the reasons to be cheerful. If there are concerns that we have specifically at OMSCO, one of my big concerns is the apparent divergence between the focus on organic amongst European nations and the UK when it comes to government influence and policy. That concerns me greatly. We are heading for a gradual dismantling of the old cap subsidy systems in favour of, in England at least, in favour of uh, public money for public goods. And there is very little mention of organic within those regimes, although the regimes themselves are targeted towards areas that organic performs very well. If you contrast that with Europe, what Europe has said is that governments will support the move to 25% of land to organic by 2030. Now, that gives the potential scale advantage in those countries that really will become something that is very difficult to compete against in the long term, unless we're willing to similarly support organic food and farming systems in the UK. So that's one concern that I have and how we will compete with countries such as France, because when I joined OMSCO 18 years ago, the UK organic dairy supply was double that of France. We're now half that of France because they have grown supply so much, but also backed by official government support through public procurements and encouragement for both consumers and retailers officially to stock and to purchase products. So there's been a very concerted effort in Europe to promote organic food and farming in in perhaps a way that hasn't been quite so prominent over here. That does have the potential to lead to some scale advantages in the long term to, to the near continent, And that means that we will not be able to compete quite so competitively on the global market because, you know, big is beautiful in this sector when it comes to processing in particular. So that's that's one of our challenges. And the the other concern that I have is our need to continue to align our organic standards with those on the near continent in the medium and long term, because any divergence means that we will lose access to the European market as we move forward. So there are big issues like the GMGE debates coming up. Will we change the definition of GMOs to include or to exclude genetic editing? 
if genetic editing becomes mainstream, how does that coexist with organic in the UK? And what would that mean for the views of UK organic standards within Europe? What are the long-term prospects therefore for exports? So those are the two sort of big macro issues that we will need to invest a lot of time and energy in discussions with government to make sure that we can put our best foot forward in global markets in the long term. Because there's no question that we will need to grow our export opportunities, as is the government policy, but not just to allow the organic sector to prosper, but also to make it efficient, to be able to balance efficiently, uh, to to be able to to do all the other things that we've talked about uh, in terms of delivering diversity, etc. But it's a good time to be in food and it's a good time to be in organic, that's for sure. Now it's over to the US for an interesting chat about cells and the future of food with an innovative company, 108 Labs. And we chatted with the company's co-founder and CEO, Shane Giuliano. I guess I wonder if we could start, if you could give me some background on 108 Labs. 108 Labs started as a family-run business. My wife, Layla, and I, we had both left the lab. I had started as an organic chemist and then went over to software development, video games, and scientific software for many years. And she, cell biologist, you know, got all the way through her postdoc. And then we started a family and uh, the tenure track did not appeal to her. So she, you know, kind of moved to editing, scientific editing, and um, eventually medical writing. In 2008, you know, we had this idea that we wanted to tinker in cellular agriculture. This was before the Mark Price burger, you know, cellular agriculture was barely even a thing that people were talking about, but there were some public projects in meat and leather that inspired us. You know, Layla really more so even than me was looking for a better career path essentially than kind of being stuck in scientific editing, which can be a bit of a dead end. So we started a lab and we sort of organized all summer looking for lab space in the Research Triangle Park area. We found a place over at the Park Foundation. There's like a nonprofit that offers essentially subsidized lab space for small startups. Found this you know, 300 square foot lab space for like $600 a month, something like that, and just scooped it up. You know, that day, you know, we woke up thinking about meat and leather we started having a logistics conversation talking about what equipment and hoods and incubators and pipettes and then what reagents we really need for this cell type for bovine uh, meat and leather. And then I had this idea that we could get cells from a slaughterhouse and, you know, I had identified a few local slaughterhouses. So we just started talking about, you know, how do we approach them and what do we ask for? What tissues and what cells do we want to test? And generally just thought we should get as many different samples as we could and just see which maybe are the easiest to work with and could turn into the best mean. So we just were open-minded about what part of a bovine to work with. And then I asked, what other cells could we use? Our whole philosophy was that there's these cell types just sitting around all over the place, underutilized. That really kind of was a novel way to think about things. You know, I think it's organisms and chemistry has been the focus for agriculture forever. And, you know, we think the cells are sort of factories. We eventually trademarked this term, cellufacturing. 
in 2014, actually. It's just this basic idea that if you put the cells on a pedestal, figure out how to turn their dials, that they can really do amazing things. And that was a hypothesis. And, um, you know, I asked what other cells could we use? And really the answer becomes obvious at that point. We, you know, I sort of blurted out, how about milking cells? We immediately looked it up. Was anybody else working on milk? No. And, you know, over the next 24 hours, you know, she was reading literature. She put together, you know, reagent list. And by noon the next day, she texted me, we're going to culture memory cells and make milk. And it was really clear to both of us. I mean, at a high level, I, I saw the path immediately. And by 24 hours, despite her more conservative sort of nature, she was just as excited. And really, we never looked back. Like we got in the lab, we spent a couple of years working with bovine cells. You know, we didn't really solve scaling. You know, we just kind of played with the cells and figured out, asked some of the basic questions, you know, do they do what they're supposed to do? Do they, you know, create these secondary structures that we thought would be necessary for milk production? So we asked some of those basic questions. And then, you know, Layla took a, an internship with a medical writing company, actually. And we spent less time in the lab for a couple of years. And then we got back in the lab in 2016. It was a little more buzz in the space. New Harvest was out there advocating for cell ag. We reached out to them. And that was a creative period in 2016. We went from sort of thinking about it on a basic level to really looking at scaling paths. Then 2019, we, we actually started talking to investors and it was sort of in the wake of Impossible Burger exploding on the scene and, and there being just a lot more interest in cellular agriculture. And we got more serious. So just about looking for ways to commercialize essentially. And at some point in that window, you know, we went all in, Layla left her job, we filed a patent, we tried to file a grant, and we launched a large-scale experiment or a proof of concept for scalable human milk biosynthesis. We had no idea if it would work. We thought, you know, we called it the home run swing at the time and took months for us to actually produce the result and start analyzing it. And when we started looking at it, we just started finding all these human milk molecules. It changed everything because when you go from an idea that everybody thinks is maybe impossible to like holding the molecules, you know, just changes the equation. And, you know, my focus really switched to antibodies. So around the same time, I figured out how to biosynthesize secretory antibodies. I immediately kind of realized that there's therapeutic potential in these molecules. There's a novel supply of these molecules and there's a lot of evidence in the literature that, you know, these really can save lives. And that became my primary interest. Initially focused on COVID. So I started working on COVID secretory antibodies. I found some leading researchers. There's not that many secretory antibody researchers in the world, you know, but I found a couple of them and they became collaborators. We became kind of fast friends and um, also working with some leading human milk researchers to just answer the question, you know, what are we making and is it milk? I don't call what we're making milk because milk has a lot of things in it, you know, including your asparagus if you ate that recently. This is different. It's really more of a milk molecules. So there's the, you know, the major molecules of milk that have, you know, immunological benefit or sort of my interest. And 
right now it's really about 108 Labs and the sort of overall vision for human milk. You know, we launched the Colostropedics concept brand last week, whole human infant formula with secretory IGA, you know, which we think is the future of infant formula and infant nutrition as a commodity. I think my focus is save the most babies, actually. It's a very simple mission. The nutraceutical slash infant formula slash dietary supplement impact that these molecules can have is just as massive in the high need populations, obviously, like infants, but bone marrow transplantees, elder care. About 80% of us have really poor microbiome, actually, and could benefit from something that supports the, the biome as well as human milk. From my bird's eye view, it's really figuring out all the different impacts that all these different molecules can have, identifying all the molecules, and then, you know, kind of figuring out how those turn into products and finding partners to help me along that path. You know, I face the same challenges everybody does in cell agriculture. It's cost reduction and regulatory scale, basically. Like, how can we make enough of this in a regulatable way that it would be, you know, safe to feed or, or heal people? And so what is the colostropedics? infant formula and how do you make it? So the Colostropedics infant formula is essentially a whole human product that encompasses all the major classes of molecules in human milk. So you have, you know, lactose and then the complex human milk oligosaccharides make up the carb fraction. You have all the proteins from lactoferrin on down. These are human molecules making the protein fraction and the milk fat globule, the whey's and the caseins and really more molecules in there that have nutraceutical and therapeutic benefit, a lot of antimicrobials in there, the mucins, for instance. And then you have the lipids and the lipids are overlooked. They're not often talked about, but I think they're quite special. The human lipids have, you know, anti-inflammatory properties that, you know, are, are reflected in the current extracts on the market. The reason why there's any efficacy in those products, you know, a lot of that comes down to the anti-inflammatory lipids. And we think these special molecules that are calorically dense and that are dissolvable in the milk complex, you know, makes them, you know, kind of special. We haven't done as much characterization on some of the smaller molecules you might expect, like the cytokines and the nucleotides, but you know, we expect them all to be there. And so the challenge is that we kind of have this like raw product that has all these amazing things in it. And you could almost drink it now. You know, it's made in a human system, so it's sort of self-testing for non-toxicity. Um, if it were toxic, the science wouldn't work. If there were microbes like bacteria in it, it wouldn't work. So it's a little bit self-testing in terms of its quality. You know, there's a few molecules in there that we're um, using that we think we got to replace before we can think of it as potable. You know, I look at it like there's a lot of opportunities for impacting health with these molecules, whether single molecules or extracts or whole products or formulated products like Colostropedics. Colostropedics is really the long-term vision for what's possible with this technology. I think the practical path to there is challenging, is going to require a lot of investment, you know, so that's kind of where we all are. Is we have these discoveries and now we got to find a way to actually turn them into products. 
And what would the benefits be for infants or anybody else taking the product? And and I guess as well, it would probably be something that would be more environmentally friendly to produce in this way. Yeah. So the environmental benefits, they're knock on and I think they're harder to quantify. You can eliminate animal agriculture with cellular agriculture. I think that's a fundamental truth. And obviously less animal agriculture, most likely less climate change and and less animal cruelty, right? So those are wonderful indirect goals of cellular agriculture. But to talk about, I think the focus is primarily on health benefits. So according to the WHO, you know, I think it's, it's important to qualify any health claims here. I'm not trying to say that I definitely can save all these babies, but I think that it's safe to say that we can move the needle. And if you look at the difference between unpasteurized breast milk and donor milk, which is pasteurized or bovine, the largest difference is immunological. So heat degradation destroys those molecules. It breaks the, it just, it just does. You know, some of the molecules are more sensitive than others, but most of them, there tends to be a correlation between immunological benefit and sensitivity to heat degradation in this set of molecules. And so heat degradation is destroying the antimicrobial benefit of these molecules now, everywhere that it's being consumed. So no human outside of feeding from their mother, or if they're getting unpasteurized milk on the black market, which is dangerous, no human has ever had access to the full bioactivity of these molecules before. And that's just because there's no way to have clean milk come out of an organism. It comes out dirty. We're making it clean. You know, our challenge is to keep it clean and then convince the regulators that it's safe to drink. But, you know, I think that's an achievable path, even if it's technically difficult. And the benefit is that I believe we have the first supply of fully immunologically active human milk molecules and secretory antibodies. Now, if we're talking about that, as a comparison with anything else available in the world. Now you can start to look at the WHO and the UNICEF data that says that babies who lack access to the immunological benefits of mother's milk, 3,500 of those will die today. That's it. That's the mission, right? So the broader that we can make these molecules available for infant nutrition, the more lives we can save. And I think there's high need situations where we can target to save the first life. But I think the only obstacle to this is capital at this point, right? So it's inexcusable that the human race can't figure out how to make these, you know, molecules available broadly as the next evolution of, you know, food and health. So that's kind of my realization is that, you know, me and a few other people in the world are kind of in a position to carve that path. And the payoff is that it saves babies, not just babies, bone marrow transplantees. It's likely to have a huge impact in elder care. If you look at the stomach when you're at the end of life versus beginning of life, you have the same problems. It's thin, it's fragile. You're not making your own secretory antibodies that well. You're not making some of those enzymes that help you break down food as easily anymore. And so all those molecules that exist in human milk when fully bioactive can extend 
lives and, and improve quality of life. Growth acceleration is sort of a magical element of human milk. It does a much better job with growth acceleration than bovine or donor milk because of the heat degradation. It's just an unexplored space because nobody's ever had these molecules before, a supply of them that you could uh, create a credible path to market. You know, the donor milk market, it requires pasteurization. It's completely unregulated. There is an extracts market related to critical care for preterm infants and, you know, these other high need indications, mostly with infant um, health and sepsis and, and some of these, you know, horrible outcomes that can occur in our most fragile moments. But those are completely unregulated products. They actually fall under a general waiver of the FDA because they're organism derived products and there's no way to regulate a human being making milk. You can kind of do it with a bovine in a farm, but you can't actually, it's, you can't take a human put them in a farm and know exactly what they eat and exactly where they've been in the same way you can, can an animal. So there's literally no potential supply of these other than cell culture. In my view, even the recombinant platforms have really failed to show that they can make bioactively equivalent molecules or the diversity of molecules that one cell can make. You know, I think the Gates Foundation actually funded a massive project where they tried to reconstitute the major molecules of human milk. And I think they had some success and there's maybe some work that's come out of there, especially into secretory IGA, which is extremely underfunded and underdeveloped considering its importance as probably the most important immunological molecule in human history. And I think that's really like our challenge is to recognize that actually these molecules can save lives, especially the most vulnerable. And, you know, if we can convince the right people of this and kind of keep the project moving forward, we can get there. You know, maybe two to three years, you could see our, the first memory cell agriculture derived products to start enter into like the functional food space. You might see some additives in infant formula at the high end, and you could probably have some early inroads there within the next three years. So is that the, really the next step is just continuing those discussions and getting funding to get them towards market? Yeah. You know, there's been, I think, a little over 20 million invested in memory cell agriculture companies over the last year. You know, hopefully they add a zero every year for the next, you know, few phases of development. I think... Any companies, probably 20 to 60 million. There, there's not too many cases of companies bringing a product to market and sell agriculture for under 80 million. You know, so there's these basic challenges. Nobody like me has ever gotten a drug approved without partnering with some major pharmaceutical company backed by billions of dollars. You know, so I don't quite know how to get there yet, but I know that that's really like the challenge is like convincing the big infant formula companies of the world that this is the future. And that's really what Colostropedics was about. And then doing everything I can. I mean, that's just, this is what I do now. Attracting investors, finding partners, running preclinical to really prove out some of these immunological hypotheses. It's really reproducing data. You know, it's sort of showing that our molecules are the same as the ones in human milk. And we have a regular, regulatable way to produce them. And there's just going to be an inflection point so we have the molecules, we have the discovery, the substance is the next step. Once you get to the substance, then the sky's the limit. 
And then processes have to be put into place to scale. So you need industrial systems that have continuous monitoring and and everything that you need in order to turn something into like a, a drug factory, really, or a food factory at least. And so that's where all the investment has to go. You know, the actual bottleneck for milk production by th- in theory, assuming you can get your hands on cells, every 40 hours, you should be able to double global mass production of milk. It's exponential growth based on the cell doubling rate. So if that's the theoretical rate of growth, there's no reason why we can't be making a million liters of milk a day in like 150 days. So there is this potential for this huge impact, but it's actually all the other things that you would have to build out in order to support those cells doubling and filling up all those bioreactors that you would need to make, all of which is achievable with proper you know, investment, in my view. It's an engineering challenge more so than a cell biology challenge at this point. Now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. This week has seen a continuation of the sell-off of last week in both butter and skim of powder from the peak of about two weeks ago um, in both products. March was, albeit kind of flat as we move through um, the month here, uh, down maybe around 10 euros for butter around to around the 40-40 level. Uh, quarter two, butter was off around uh, 280, 290 euros to around 39, 70, 75 level. Quarter three, butter was trading around 40, 20 level, 40, 25 level, which is off around 320 euros on the week. A quarter four also off around 320 euros on the week to around the 40, 40 level. March skim milk powder was relatively flat uh, based on last week, uh, trading around the 24.55, 24.60 level. Quarter two skim then was down around 90 euros to the 24.70 level. Quarter three skim milk powder was off around 70 euros to the 25.10 level. And quarter four was off around 40 euros to the 25.50 level. Whey uh, was trading around the, in quarter two, trading around the 1050 level. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. StoneX, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for another podcast. Amazingly, by the end of today, I'll have the next two weeks covered. So next week, all being well, we will be chatting to EcoVeritas, Neogen and Tetrapack although not necessarily in that order. And so until next time, wherever in the world you may be, please stay safe, take care, and, as always, thanks for listening.